Cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, July 25th, 2011. Does my voice sound a little hoarse? Yeah, I've been fighting a laryngitis for the past couple of days. I feel fine, I just don't sound good. <laughs> so we'll have to call this a laryngitis edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said and done out there. We do the uh, hard, politically incorrect work and uh, document it, chronicle it, let you hear it. And at times we actually mock it and make fun of it. You're thinking, well, why would you do something like that? There's good biblical precedents for things of that nature. I would recommend if you're not sure about this, uh, take a look at uh, the story of Elijah on the on the on Mount Car- Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Yeah, that that's an interesting story. And if you can read it in the Hebrew, all the more better. You can kind of see where it goes in that direction. So we try to have a little bit of fun along the way. We don't try to take ourselves too seriously or even the heretics too seriously, although they are a deadly threat. Um, but uh, the, the goal here at the end of the day is for you to think more biblically, to think more critically, and to not just take a, a person who claims to be a man of God's, quote, word for it. Um, you know, because uh, last time I checked, every one of us, me and you and every pastor that ever be and ever will be until Christ returns well, is still a sinner and still struggles and wrestles with their sinful nature. Each and every one of us is capable of some egregious sins. And so, uh, you know, the, the saying there, but for the grace of God go I, well, this is very true. But the thing is, is that sometimes we got guys in the church who are, well, um, wolves dressed up as sheep. It's, you know, wolves apparently like to cross-dress as sheep. Who knew? Uh, or, you know, Satan himself, according to Jesus, likes to masquerade as an angel of light. So you got to watch out. you got to test people. And the only thing that you can do to protect yourself is be in God's word so that you know what it says in context and what the natural sense, the sensus naturalis of the text is saying, so that you can be protected against false teaching. Because when you know the, the real thing really well, 
what will end up happening is, is that when somebody says something that's false, something that's off, you're going to go, you know, that doesn't sound right. I don't think that's really what the Bible teaches. And, and therefore, you can go and do the work of a Berean and compare what people is, are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. doesn't matter if they're the world's most popular Christian author, speaker, pastor, uh, it does, public. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. It, it Radio personality, podcaster, doesn't matter. God's Word is true. Let His Word be true and the rest of us be judged according to it. All right, so I've been on vacation, and uh, I, I had a fantastic week, fantastic week last week. Um, I'm on the board of directors for Higher Things, which is a a, a Lutheran youth conference organization, and they hold three conferences every summer, and I, I have just been elected recently to the uh, board of directors for Higher Things. And so I spent last week at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, and <laughs> talking about a cheap vacation. Anyway, uh, the nice thing there was a lot of work involved, but uh, I, I got to recharge my battery, spend some times with uh, some great times with some of my uh, uh, confessional Lutheran friends and uh, guys that are pastors, and uh, just a great time to recharge my battery. Uh, I st- <laughs> I stayed at the in, in the dorms, uh, you know, my, because I'm a member of the board of directors. My room and board was paid for, so we got to eat cafeteria food. And sleep in the college dorms. And I haven't slept in a college dorm, well, since college. And I had forgotten how disagreeable that experience can be. Anyway, uh, at Emory University, for whatever reason, I I don't know why they do this, but, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. So you're going to hear me gripe here for a second. So, you know, if you want to fast forward, I understand. But anyway, at Emory University, they they have several different conferences come through their campus during the summer. Apparently, this is one of the ways in which colleges and universities uh, you know, try to make some extra money. I mean, they have all of these vacant dorms, uh, which can be used as kind of pseudo hotel rooms, if you would. And so at Emory University, uh, they've got the dorm beds and, uh, you know, the regular uh, size, twin, uh, twin mattress size. Uh, they've got some kind of a nylon thing along uh, around the mattress, I think, to make it so that certain... Um, Certain fluids don't get into the mattress, and the mattress has a longer life to it. But what was interesting is, is that the folks there at Emory University have decided that fitted sheets are not the thing for uh, for their conference folks. And so, upon arriving there at uh, Emory University and getting into my dorm room, and uh, the first night I, uh, I shared uh, I shared my dorm with uh, uh, Jeff Schwartz of Issues, etc. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing, but. Uh, They gave us two sheets, but they weren't fitted sheets, so they don't actually fit over the mattress. And it's up to you to kind of figure out how to work out your sleeping arrangement. So, you know, I tried it sandwich style. I put one of the sheets down, tried to tuck it under uh, the mattress, and that didn't work. It didn't quite reach. Um, And then then I put the other other sheet down, and then, you know, they gave us this, you know, kind of paper-thin blanket type of thing. Of course, the air conditioning down there in Atlanta was blowing at Arctic uh, blizzard setting. And uh, and so – uh, not only was I cold and uncomfortable, but I kept waking up and the sheets were like all over. It was like a mess. I was trying to figure out how to make a Rosebro taco to sit still on this really slippery surface and it just didn't work. So, but anyway, I, so I felt like I never got really a good night's sleep while I was down there in Emory, but fantastic conference. I, I can't speak highly enough uh, of what the the folks there at uh, Higher Things are doing. Uh, George Borg, Hart, Sandra Astapowich. Um, yeah, uh, Pastor Mark Buto, uh, Bill Swirla, all of these folks, uh, you know, uh, Coleman, Col- uh, Colmeyer, all of these guys, just doing a fantastic, fantastic job, 
And uh, it was a great, great time. So um, looking, I'm already like looking forward to next year's Higher Things conferences. I mean, <sighs> anyway, <laughs> so that's where I was last week. And uh, when I came back on the weekend, uh, you know, I, I was exhausted. And uh, you know, oh, by the way, uh, have you <clears throat> got to finally meet in person, uh, Reverend uh, Reverend Fisk, Rev Fisk of Worldview Everlasting? Great guy, great guy, great guy. In fact, I'm I'm trying to figure out. I'm kind of keeping my eye open to see if we can't figure out how, how to have him in a sermon cage fight against one of the uh, one of the seeker driven guys in an upcoming episode of Fighting for the Faith. But uh, got, got to meet uh, Reverend Fisk. We spent a lot of time together, and uh, just great guy too. So <clears throat> anyway, just had to share that all. Just had, you know, kind of get that off my mind and let everyone know what a fantastic time I had. And uh, looking forward to next year's very inexpensive vacation where my room and board is paid for because I'm a board member of higher <laughs> things. In fact, my, even my uh, my travel was paid for you know, for the uh, the board meetings. Anyway, all right, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. It seems like the whole world went crazy last week. Um, I made a point of, like, not looking at the news and not spending a lot of time on my Facebook wall except for to clean up a few things, uh, you know, get the Zynga stuff off there. Um, and so I, I really didn't, I wasn't engaged with any of the conversations on my Facebook wall, wasn't really tracking down the news stories. And when I got back on uh, Saturday was kind of shocked. I mean, the whole world just seemed to go crazy. And of course it's uh, it, it apparently the fault of Christians. And so, uh, you know, in, in the story I'm referring to is the, uh, the terrorist action and the near 90 people who were murdered in cold blood in, uh, in Norway uh, apparently at the hands of a fundamentalist Christian. Well, when I got onto Twitter after, uh, you know, having been off Twitter, for, I've been off Twitter actually for about three or four weeks. Um, as, as I approached my vacation time, I kind of disengaged from Twitter because, you know, I could feel that I was, uh, my battery was running really low and I just didn't have the energy to get involved in any of the Twitter stuff. So I kind of just had the Facebook fallback thing for a little while, but anyway, got back onto Twitter and uh, was uh, not surprised in light of the news that was going on that there were people in the liberal camp, uh, some of my emergent liberal nemesi, uh, who uh, have decided to call me out. Yeah, that's right. I, I'm being called out on Twitter because apparently Pirate Christian Radio and what I do here is the is hate speech. And it's guys like me that are responsible for uh, the terrorist action that took place in Oslo and, and in Norway. Um yeah, nothing could be further from the truth. And uh, but you know, when when stuff like that happens, you know, people calling me out and telling me that yeah, we gotta we gotta shut Roseboro down because it's him, it's guys, broadcasters like him that engage in hate speech that are responding. No, no, we're not. We're, I mean, that's ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. I mean, uh, let me give you an example. Okay, let me just give you one that kind of hits home. I've actually read people who say, well, maybe Jesus wasn't the best teacher in the world. I mean, after all, one of his own disciples, Judas, is the one who betrayed him. And so that proves that if you really spend too much time preaching the gospel, that it it it, 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 it ends up leading to people, you know, uh, basically acting cavalier in a, in, in, regarding the law and for them to turn into demons. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, that's blaming Jesus for Judas's action. It doesn't make any sense. Well, same thing here. Um, but, you know, when things like this happen, I'm very tempted 
to say, you know, to change the tagline for Pirate Christian Radio and say, Pirate Christian Radio, Christian hate speech uh, that loves you enough to tell you the truth so that you don't end up in hell. You know, things like that. Because the way they're defining the word hate, it always comes down to somebody who is saying that they're right and and that everybody else is wrong. That 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 Christians who dare to say that, oh, there's only one way to God and that's through Jesus. How dare they? It, it, it leads to terrorist action. Now, granted, there are some nut jobs out there. But the thing is, is that um, Christianity, and Jesus in particular, does not teach people to go and engage in terrorist actions in the spreading of the gospel. In fact, quite the opposite. So we're going to take a look at uh, the, the Oslo uh, terrorist action that took place in uh, in Norway, at least as far as the uh, uh, the media coverage of it. And, and I'm glad to see that CNN is already kind of backpedaling a little bit on the way they've covered the story and so we'll take a look at that. I've got some email that I want to get to today. Um, and then we got some crazy stuff here. Um, let's see here. I've got a, 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 a Patricia King gang update from Melissa Fisher. She's got a brand new video entitled Boldly Go. We've got a new art, uh, a new artifact in the Museum of Idolatry uh, that I'm calling the NASCAR Prayer. You all have seen the movie uh, Talladega Nights. Well, who knew that uh, it would end up leading... <laughs> <clears throat> where reality reflects the movies. We'll take a look at that. I've got a brand new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Um, this is one I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, the new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church uh, is, uh, it, it's, um, well, um, taking some of uh, Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick's um, more juicy public comments that they've made recently and songifying them. So, yeah, songifying. This, this is something I learned from Pastor Mark Buto when I was at Higher Things last week. Anyway, uh, Pastor Buto taught me how to songify. If you've all seen the Antoine Dodson uh, video and the subsequent um, auto-tuned song that came out as a result of Antoine Dodson's uh, statements about hiding your kids and hiding your wives, well, apparently the folks that uh, made that video have an app on the the iTunes Music Store, iTunes App Store, entitled Songify. And so I uh, I took some of uh, Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick's comments and I songified them and then turned it into the, the, kind of the you know made a, a commercial for Perry Noble's uh, techno dance praise album entitled More Like Jesus. We'll be playing that Marty Python today, and um, and then we have well this is interesting. Uh, we're gonna we got a sermon review from the Bridge. That's the name of the uh, the church, and they're out there in Missouri. Yeah, the Bridge in Missouri. And uh, they're near St. Louis, and uh, the name of the sermon is, If God is on your side, how can negativity abide? If God is on your side, how can negativity abide? That will be our sermon review in hour number two today. So we've got lots of ground to cover. It's great to be back in the in studio. I, you know, after my vacation, my, my batteries are fully charged. Even though it doesn't sound, my voice doesn't sound so good, I feel great. So... Um, I must have spent way too much time talking when I was at Higher Things. That's all I can say. Yeah, the, the moral of the story is is that uh, when, when Chris travels to Higher Things, maybe spend less time talking and more time sleeping. But, uh, well, that has yet to be seen. Anyway, let's start off with some news email here. I've got a few emails that I want to read today. I'm way behind on emails. 
Okay, I got an email here from a gentleman who calls himself Jason. I know, I don't know what town Jason is from, but uh, Jason is emailing me regarding uh, Oz Guinness's statements. And if you remember back uh, when I uh, interviewed Phil Johnson and we did the debrief regarding uh, Rick Warren's interview by John Piper, Rick Warren had made the the, the statement that you know, Oz Guinness's book really wasn't about Saddleback, and in Saddleback should not be considered it lumped into the uh, those churches that Oz Guinness was critiquing. Well, Jason writes, he says, you know, I listened to your Piper Warren debriefing today, and you were debating whether Oz was talking about Saddleback or not. Now, Rick tried to deflect and to say that because Oz was on staff that he couldn't have been talking about Saddleback. My thought was that because he was on staff at Saddleback, that was the reason that he wrote the book. He saw so many bad things at Saddleback and where it leads that he got so scared that he had to write about it because Oz was being polite and because you see the same thing in all of these types of churches that he didn't point out Saddleback specifically. Also, because then people would have tried to marginalize the book as Oz was just being negative or that he had had a bad experience and he was angry at the events. Therefore, the book would have been deemed a madman's attempt to get back at whoever did him wrong at Saddleback. You know, Jason, I think this is this is a valid point uh, because when you read uh, when you read Oz's book, it's clear that uh, many of the things that he's describing there, it's almost like he has an insider view of it. And, um, you know, he, he understands the seeker-driven church methodology very well from the inside. And so, uh, I, I, although he doesn't say it, I mean, I have to admit your, your email here is speculative. Um, I would say that if we, you know, maybe Oz, you know, would, would agree with you. I, I, but I, I can't say that with certainty, but and it, I think that actually has more of the ring of truth anyway. Jason then goes on to say, I was wronged by the uh, the staff and people at Fellowship Church in Dallas. So if I wrote a book about the seeker-sensitive movement, then people would say that he's just angry about the events at his former church, and that is the only reason why he wrote the book. So don't even take him seriously. I think you should look at Oz in the sense that he was an undercover reporter like in the old days. They don't do that anymore. They're just compliant with letting the politicians tell them what they want to hear and then write it down and then report that. Oz may have went into Saddleback full of enthusiasm and belief. Once on staff, God started to uncover the false Christ and lies being taught there. Now that he has been through that, he can write as someone who has firsthand knowledge of the events taking place in that environment. Who better to critique a church than one who has been on staff? What would Rick say to someone who is criticizing him but has never been on staff? He doesn't know me because he has never been around me, so therefore he can't criticize me. Then he would pull the scripture until you walk a mile in someone else's shoes verse. Now that someone has been on staff and has seen the filth going on inside of there, Rick says, oh, he couldn't be talking about me. He was on staff. Oz was talking about Rick and was the main reason the emphasis of the book. Make no mistake about it. The book was about Saddleback. Oz either changed his mind about this type of church or went as an undercover agent who now has eyewitness accounts. Jason, fantastic email. Great stuff and good insight. You're right, because you, that's exactly how they play it. It's it's kind of like, uh, at least Rick Warren, it's like he wants his cake and eats it too. You can't critique Saddleback unless you've been there. Well, I've been there. Um, I haven't been on staff, but you, you don't have intimate knowledge because you haven't been on staff. Well, I, I've been there. I've been to Saddleback. I've sat in on their uh, small group studies. I've actually 
uh, done quite a lot of undercover research at Saddleback. But, uh, you know, anyway, but when you point that out, you know, in, in the case of uh, Oz Guinness here, he, he, the guy who's actually been on staff knows it intimately. Well, he couldn't be talking about Saddleback. No, he couldn't. Well, what other what other seeker-driven churches has Oz been on staff at where he would have intimate working knowledge of what goes on in those churches? Hmm. Anyway, great, great, great point. Okay, moving along here, another email. Um, <clears throat> this one is from uh, Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley from across the pond. Uh, Hanley Stoke-on-Trent, Pastor Charlie writes, he says, I- I'm listening to Eric Dykstra's Don't Be a Donkey sermon. <clears throat> if a man must preach about animals, and he shouldn't, he really ought to talk about animals of the Bible. And donkeys, I mean donkeys, appear again and again in the Bible. Jesus rode one into Jerusalem, after all. Uh, but the one donkey I'm most reminded of by Mr. Dykstra's, Dykstra's disaster is Balaam's donkey. She could have preached a far better sermon. <laughs> I um, would tend to agree with that. Um, these wretched sermons are apparently all designed for Christians. After all, God is not everyone's father, but where did he lay the foundations? My suspicion is that, like most of these seeker-driven fellows, is that he never has. No foundation and just fluff rather than an, an any substantial at all. I, I mean, half a verse, half a verse, and... Treating Winnie the Pooh as if it started as a cartoon. It's a book, man. (laughs) I think you're right. Yes, you're right. A.A. Milne wrote the stories. So we have an ignorant man teaching nonsense. If I'm a little harsh, it's because I just spent a whole day. That's an italicized a whole day studying the Bible in preparation for a 30 minute Bible study based on 12 whole verses of the book of Hebrews in context. And then Pastor Charmley ends with. I need a beer. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really galling is that guys like Eric Dykstra, who preach on absolutely nothing, who tickle uh, the ears of pagans, uh, who handle flippantly mishandle God's word, do so flagrantly, do so uh, callously, and just completely butcher the biblical text in their attempt to be relevant— they're the ones who have, you know, four or five hundred people showing up every Sunday, whereas the guys like Pastor Charmley who actually take the time to engage in biblical sermon craft and making sure that they got their I's dotted and their T's crossed uh, regarding what the biblical text says and ha- and want to teach it in a way that people are engaged with what the Holy Spirit intended to be communicated in those passages. Well, those guys are marginalized and told they're doing something wrong. Well, Pastor Charmley... What you're doing is exactly what God would have you do. Preach the word in season and out of season. And, uh, in you know, if, if I ever get around to uh, visiting the United Kingdom, I look forward to having that beer with you. All right. We are up on our first break. And uh, during this first break, we're going to be playing our brand new Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. And, well, entitled... Pastor Perry Noble's More Like Jesus album. So you don't want to miss that. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. New from Los Lobos Ministry Records. An album that's just oozing with the love of Christ. It's Pastor Perry Noble's new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. The songs on this album will melt your face off in a sanctified way. This album includes the number one purpose-driven praise techno dance song of all time entitled, well, you might just want to hear it for yourself. If you're about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. I tell people to say that around here, you're only as deep as the last person you served. You know what I tell people to say that around here, you're only as deep as the last person you served. If you're what about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. If you're what about the jackass in the church, the jackass in the church is the person that always screams, I want to go deeper. Don't you feel closer to Jesus after hearing that sample? Well, we've got another one for you, too. This one's entitled, You Officially Suck. I think that you officially suck as a human being. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Come with a I think that you officially suck as a human being. I'm not playing games. I think that you officially suck as a human being. Other tracks include Your Grandma Smokes Weed and I Don't Like Hanging Out With People That Make Me Uncomfortable. Act now, and Los Lobos Ministry will even throw in a free bonus track by Stephen Furtick entitled Cause They're Stupid. Here's a sample. Cause they're stupid. Cause they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. A lot of people don't like rock and roll in church because they're stupid. Because they're stupid. So act now and get Pastor Perry Nobles brand new techno praise album entitled More Like Jesus. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour 
of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, this program steps on toes and is politically incorrect. The liberals call it hate speech, but what it really is, it's called the truth. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is liberal, uh, liberal supported radio. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you and to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're setting up to automatically contribute $6.95. That's it. On an, on, on an ongoing monthly basis, uh, and of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't give a, a props. Uh, while I was in Atlanta, let's see, I, I flew in on Monday, and then Tuesday morning, I actually spent... Uh, the morning at uh, Wretched Radio's uh, digs, uh, they've <laughs> they've got an old pencil factory that they that they uh, they got an office in their studio in, and I got to meet Todd Friel and spend some time with him. And he was actually I, I didn't expect this, but he was kind enough to actually have me on his television program and his uh, and his radio show. So we, uh, man, you know he he's kind of uh, I don't know how to put it this way. Oh, let me see if I can if I can kind of phrase it. Uh, he been he's been burnt by really bad. Lutheranism, and so he's not exactly hip on Lutherans, and so as a result of it, I I, I just was wondering if he was projecting his uh, bad experience in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod uh, on me. I just you know just wondering. Anyway, but uh, no, it, it was it was really fun to meet him, and we uh, he took me out to lunch, and I, I got to eat some fried green tomatoes out there at a wonderful little restaurant with him and his son, and uh, great guy, great guy, and. Uh, and you know, just want to encourage him to keep doing what he's doing. I, I got to learn a little bit more about kind of what makes him tick, and I understand what motivates him to do what he's doing. And uh, you know, I just pray that God continues to use him in that direction. Okay, now that I've got that off my chest, let's move along here. Ah, oh, yes, it's been it's been over a week since I've done this. Feels like only yesterday. Okay. 
Okay, so uh, yeah, Melissa Fisher, she's getting a little bit more airplay here at Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, well, <laughs> there's good reason why. Because uh, when she opens her mouth, crazy things come out uh, like this. Hey, everyone. Now, this is for a lot of you out there, and I just keep hearing shift, 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 shift. You have felt the transition in your life. You've been feeling it, and now it's time to step into it. But for Oh, man. <laughs> I, I shouldn't comment. For some of you, God has given you that Abraham call that says, go to the place that I will show you. Yeah, oh boy. Um yeah, see this is kind of a confusion of uh of really not even a confusion. Um, unfortunately Melissa Fisher has like no concept of biblical hermeneutics. And uh one of the things that happens with evangelicals is they flatten out the biblical text in such a way that uh they, they it turns into a pretzel or a wax nose or into silly putty and everything turns into application. Okay, so this is an example of that. So here we've got her saying, oh, you've got this Abraham calling on your life just like he did. And, you know, and God is telling you to go and do something because there's a shift in your life. Listen, the story of Abraham is not about you. It's not. And what happened to Abraham is not for you to emulate. So here's the problem is, is that American evangelicals flatten out the biblical text so that everything becomes an application. The Bible's not meant to be read this way. Okay, there are certain things in the Bible that tell us things that we ought to do. There are certain things in the Bible that tell us what we ought not to do or to avoid like the plague. Okay, so those would fall into the category of law passages. You know, God commanding us at him being God, us being his creatures. He has a right to actually kind of lay out the ground rules. It's it's a it's a father thing, if you would. Um, and so God can say, you do this or and don't do that. Okay. Those are the things that we're to pursue, and those are the things that we're to apply to our lives, okay? So uh, let me give you an example, okay? Let's pretend that you are reading the Bible, and you come across that thorny passage there in Exodus chapter 20 that says, Thou shalt not steal. Now, some of you are going to be listening or reading that passage, and you're going to go, hmm, man, you know, this really convicts me because I've been stealing paper clips at work, okay? Or I've been, you know, I've been just borrowing office supplies from the, you know, from the office supply closet at work, and that's theft, okay? So you, you read that passage and immediately you're convicted, and the way this gets applied to your life is that you don't, you don't want to steal, um, and so this, you, you, you need to come clean, confess, and uh, and you know and restore what you've done wrong there. That, that, so that's how you read that passage. Now others of you are not stealing. Okay, you're not stealing from your employer. You're not stealing from you know anybody. You know you haven't knocked off any liquor stores lately or things like that. And so you read that passage. And there's a positive application to it because we're to love and serve our neighbors. And so the positive application is that we're to help our neighbors to keep possession of their stuff. And so uh, if some, let's say somebody's trying to steal somebody else's stuff by legal pre, uh, pretense or whatever, we stand in the gap for that person and stand for them so that th their stuff isn't taken from them. Um, or we, you know, you know, this could this could take place in a in a in a way that has to do with poverty or things of that nature. You, you get what I'm saying. So there's there's all kinds of different ways of applying the passage that says, "Thou shalt not steal." But we get to the passage about Abraham. Okay, 
And it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's pointing to us to believe something, not to do something, although believing is a verb. And so the idea is, is that the application at that point of that passage is for us to to believe what that passage is saying, what the natural sense of that passage means. So for, let me give you another example. You read in the in the Gospels the story of of the angel Gabriel announcing to the Virgin Mary that she's going to conceive and give birth to a son, and she's to call him Jesus. Well, you don't get to apply this to your life because not me, not you, not anybody is going to virgin birth uh, in a virgin birth kind of way, give birth to the Messiah. That's already been done. So we come across the passages like that. The application is not that there's something that you're supposed to do. There's a doctrine that you're to be believing. And so we see this in Melissa Fisher here. She's flattening out the biblical text and, and basically engaging in absurdity because she's telling us that, you know, hey, there's shift coming along in your life and God's giving you an Abraham calling. <laughs> really? Seriously? Yeah, this just shows you don't know how to handle the biblical text. Let's keep going. Abraham call that says, go to the place that I will show you. And what I feel like, and this is for someone in particular, he has said to... Uh, what I feel like. Oh, okay, so here we go. We got another word of knowledge. Uh, by the way, when we, uh, when we play Melissa Fisher's words of knowledge, this is a public service to uh, our listeners here. Uh, for whatever reason, the folks over there at Extreme Prophetic, when these word of knowledge videos get posted, they only get several hundred views. And so, yeah, I, considering the fact that there's 6.5 billion people on the planet... Yeah, we, we want to do our part to make sure that the maximum number of people actually hear uh, this prophetic word of knowledge so that it arrives at the right place, if you would. Uh, just it's something I just want to let you all know. Boldly go where no man has gone before. Oh, wait a second. What? Hang on a second. She did not just say that. I'm backing up the audio so we can hear this in context. Here we go. Show you. And what I feel like, and this is for someone in particular, he has said to boldly go where no man has gone before. Really? 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 This, oh man, this is passing off as Christian ministry. Space, the final frontier. See, here's my question. Why would this be the Abraham calling when this is more like the Captain Kirk calling, you know, to boldly, boldly go where no man has gone before? These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. All right. Ah, that's right. This nerd moment was brought to you by uh, Melissa Fisher of Extreme Prophetic Ministries and her boldly go where no man has gone before, Abraham calling upon your life. He said to boldly go where no man has gone before. And that's a word for you. 
Because in this time, he is shifting things. You're going to step into it, and you're going to go into pretty much the unknown. And you're going to do some things that nobody has ever done before. You're feeling a little bit easy and un uneasy and a little bit scared about it. But you've got to understand, it's time to take that leap of faith. It's time to trust God. I think of song. Yeah, you got to be careful. When you're taking leaps of faith encouraged by the folks over at Extreme Prophetic, yeah, you could be jumping off a cliff. Solomon, where he invites the one, his beloved, to leap and skip over the mountains with him. And that invitation is for you. And it's not. Now here we go again. Flattening out the scripture into application. It's not going to be laid out in a nice, neat little blueprint like you'd like it to. You've had that in the past, but God is treating you like a son. So he's going to have you step out, not just because it's right there in front of you and you see it, but knowing that your God is faithful and will be with you and wherever he leads you is going to be the right path. So in this shift, 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 trust him. He's going to take you to places you've never dreamed of and never imagined. And it's going to be the time of your life. Fear not. Run for the hills. Fear this like crazy. Oh, my goodness. How is it that Patricia King and Extreme Prophetic have like a million dollar a year budget? And they, they, they get that in uh, donations. I, I just don't get it. There's no substance there at all. Anyway, <clears throat> moving along. Okay, from the CBC News Service. Headline reads, Motives Behind Terror Attack in Norway. We're going to be looking at how the media is covering the Norway attack by this guy. And uh, I want you to hear this so that you can kind of get a feel for uh, how all Christians who are conservative are now being equated with Muslim fundamentalist extremists as a result of this attack. And I think this is some just really bad and irresponsible and maybe even politically motivated handling of this particular story. Here, listen in. The 32-year-old man behind the carnage claims he acted alone in a deranged attempt to start a revolution in Norwegian society. But who could be capable of such gruesome acts? The CBC's Nala Ayed begins our coverage with a look into the mind of a killer. Nala. Anne-Marie Anders Breivik believed it is better to kill too many than not enough. In the mind of Anders Breivik, Norway's nightmare lurked for years as a radical idea. An idea he nurtured, researched meticulously, until eventually he put it into action. It is laid out in incredible, coherent detail in 1,500 pages, written over nine years. A manifesto of zealous political ideology. Part diary, part user manual, part diatribe against multiculturalism and Islam. Once you decide to strike, it is better to kill too many than not enough, he writes. Or you risk reducing the desired ideological impact of the strike. Every page is now a source of valuable insight for police eager to learn about the mass murderer in the making. Already known as a fundamentalist Christian who chose to be baptized at 15, police now also describe him as a gun-loving, right-wing extremist, an immigrant hater, and a self-described nationalist. Yeah, so there we go. He's a, um, a baptized. He chose to be baptized at age 15. Fundamentalist, Christian, gun lover, and immigrant hater. Um, yeah, so the question I have is, um, since when does the Bible teach 
that murder is expedient and okay in the ways in which you achieve the goals of the kingdom of God. Did Jesus teach this? Did Jesus, yeah, you understand what I'm saying here? Boy, this sounds like it's, uh, like the media is just looking and, you know, to, you know, looking their chops for anybody who's, uh, right of center when it comes to some kind of a terrorist act so they can at least if, create a backlash against their political enemies. That's how I see the story being played out. He say, says that uh, he was acting alone, but we have to make sure that that's true, that his version is true. That investigation now proceeds as meticulously as his deadly plan. Police have traced it back to a farm Breivik acquired and moved into a month ago, and to the bags of fertilizer they believe were used in making the bomb. Neighbors thought he was nice, but his actions were odd. He has not farmed the land properly, she says. He received a lot of fertilizer, but hadn't taken any of it out. Also central to their probe is his mother's apartment, where again today police searched for clues. He called this place home for a while. Only occasionally, terrified neighbors told us, coming out to the balcony for a cigarette. This neighbor has been friends with his mother for 20 years. And he smokes cigarettes, too. I mean, that should tell you something. Her just hours before the rampage started and hasn't heard from her since. She must be having a horrible time right now, she says. I can just imagine, being a mother myself, I would have died on the spot. She didn't know anything about any of this. She was so proud of her son. She thought he was the best, and then she finds this out. On the face of it, and to many a Norwegian, he appears ordinary. Outstanding, perhaps only for his membership in the Freemasons and in the Oslo Gun Club. So he's a Freemason and a member of the Oslo Gun Club, too. Notice, I mean, it's as if the folks on the left are doing everything they can to throw all of their political opponents under the bus with basically this kind of unstated premise. If you own a gun, if you are a fundamentalist Christian, if you attend a gun club, smoke cigarettes, um, or you you are a Freemason, apparently um, you are a complete threat to society the same way that uh, the uh, 9-11 terrorists are. Yeah, that's just what we call irresponsible uh, reporting. And I'm glad to see that the uh, that of all places the CNN belief blog has a an article up entitled "Is Christian or Is Christian Fundamentalist Is the Christian Fundamentalist Label Correct for Norway Terror Suspect?" This is by Dan Gigloff, CNN.com religion editor. Here's what he writes. And by the way, CNN is not exactly what I would consider the a bastion of conservative politics. Uh, which, uh, in my opinion, makes this uh, story just that much a little bit better. Uh, here we go. Uh, Dan writes, says, Given initial suspicions that Friday's bombing and mass shooting in Norway were carried out by an is- Islamic militants linked to al-Qaeda, the way police ended up describing the suspect behind the attacks came as a big surprise, even to many security experts. The alleged attacker was called a Christian fundamentalist. But... Experts on European politics and religion say that the Christian fundamentalist label could overstate the extent to which the suspect, Anders Bering Breivik, who who has told authorities that he carried out the attacks, was motivated by religion and the extent to which he is tied to a broader religious movement. Quote, it is true that he sees himself as a crusader 
and some sort of Templar knight, said Marcus Buck, a political science professor at Norway's University of Tromso, referring to an online manifesto that Breivik appears to have authored and which draws inspiration from medieval Christian crusaders. Quote, but he doesn't seem to have any insight into Christian theology or any ideas of how the Christian faith should play any role in Norwegian or European history, Buck wrote in an email message. Quote, his links to Christianity are much more based on being against Islam and what he perceives of as a cultural Marxism. From what the 1,500-page manifesto says, Brevik appears to have been motivated more by an extreme loathing of European multiculturalism, multiculturalism, <laughs> multiculturalism that has accompanied rapid immigration from the developing world and of the European Union's growing powers than by Christianity. My impression is that Christianity is used more as a vehicle to unjustly assign some religious moral weight to his political views, said Anders Romarheim, a fellow at the Norwegian Institute for Defense Studies. Quote, it is a signifier of Western culture and values, which is what they pretend to defend. Quote, I would say that they are more anti-Islam than pro-Christian, Rohrman uh, said in reference to what appears to be Brevik's views. The manifesto is, is religion-obsessed in that it rants for long stretches against Muslims and their growing presence in Europe. It calls for a European civil war to overthrow governments and end multiculturalism and execute cultural Marxists. The manifesto includes a link to a video asserting that the majority of Europe's population will be Muslim by 2050 unless we manage to defeat the ruling multiculturalist alliance. The author of the document identifies himself as Brevik, but CNN could not independently verify that he wrote the document, and Norwegian authorities would not confirm that the man in their custody wrote the manifesto, says, saying it was part of their investigation. The story goes on then to say that experts on religion in Europe said that those faith-infused views of uh, Breviks are likely peculiar to the suspected gunmen and do not appear to reflect wider religious movements, even as they, as they echo grievances of Europe's right-wing political groups. Quote, he was a flaky extremist who might as well have claimed to be fighting for the honor of Hogwarts as for the cause of Christ, said Philip Jenkins, a Pennsylvania State University professor, who studies global religion and politics, describing the suspected Norway attacker, quote, he did not represent a religious movement. People should not follow that Christian fundamentalist red herring. So here we got CNN now. Again, CNN is not a, a conservative news agency by any stretch of the imagination. And they've got folks here basically saying the conservative fundamentalist label being slapped on this guy is a red herring. And I would completely agree. Based upon the way the media has been handling the story you know, from Friday all the way to today, um, yeah, claiming this guy is a Christian, a fundamentalist Christian, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me because somebody who is a, quote, fundamentalist Christian, and I mean this in, in, in the historic definition, somebody who holds to the belief that there are particular fundamental doctrines, certain uh, theological loci that cannot be denied without it irreparably damaging saving faith. That's kind of the, the historical definition of what it means to be a fundamentalist. Uh, that uh, somebody like Brevik, who believes that he can, in, you know, in, basically try to incite 
political war and uh, inside a war and upheaval through the mass murder of you know nearly a hundred people. Uh, that doesn't put him in the Christian camp. That puts him in the camp of somebody who's a whack job, somebody who uh, shows what happens to people when our sinful nature gets uh, runs amok, if you would. Uh, he doesn't reflect the teachings of Jesus Christ in any stretch of the imagination. And for the uh, news media to slap this you know, label on him and then, uh, by extension, say that uh, all Christians who are fundamentalist, gun-owning uh, people who uh, smoke cigarettes— uh, should be, uh, you know, he, he need to watch out for those. I mean, that, that that's where the next terror cell could be uh, growing up. Well, I'm sorry, but that's just not the case. Uh, biblical Christians are not called by Christ to do such things. We're called to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And this is absolutely irresponsible, uh, politically motivated, uh, you know, mishandling of uh, what's happening in the news for political ends. And, uh, and you know, that's all I can say about this matter. But uh, this, this guy does not represent biblical Christianity in any stretch of the imagination. And those who are calling for me to stop my hate speech because it incites guys like this, you don't know what you're talking about. All right, we are up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Master, it be too late to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel boarders. And mark well me words, mateys. Dead men tell no tales. <laughs> Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Join our crew today. 
and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Yep, we got to make sure we condemn what happened in Norway as murder. That's what the Bible calls it. Doesn't matter what political party you're in, that's murder. That's not what Christ or the God of the Bible teaches us to do. Let's move along. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Uh, today's sermon comes to us via SOS Church, uh, that spirit of St. Louis Church, well, near St. Louis, Missouri. Tom Skiles presiding. Yeah, the name of the sermon... Um, If God is on your side, how can negativity abide? And uh, remember what I referred to earlier with Melissa Fisher, how uh, one of the problems that's happening in evangelicalism is a compressing of the biblical text, a reduction of the text in such a way that somehow every passage has a particular uh, application for you. Now, I'm not saying that the passage that he's going to be preaching on, because he's going to be going to the story of David and Goliath, but we're going to take a look at how he handles it. There, There might be an application there for you. But it's definitely not what he's finding in this text, if he's really even preaching the text. So let me uh, kill the music without any further ado. Here is uh, Pastor Tom from the Bridge Worship Experience, also known as SOS Church, yeah, near St. Louis in Missouri. And uh, if God is on your side, how can negativity abide? Here we go. Um, listen, I want to talk to you briefly about this particular comment or this particular phrase. If God is on my side, how can negativity abide? Okay, <laughs> stop. I uh, got a question. Um, uh, I, I don't recall that phrase appearing anywhere in the Bible. So already we got a problem because we're not in a biblical text. We're kind of starting with a, a human concept here. Hmm. If God is on my side, how can negativity abide? I've learned in life that if, that, 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 and I've decided in life to, to be an optimist because there's really nothing else to be. If you're not going to be an optimist, what are you going to be? And if you're not going to allow your mind to move toward optimistic things, um, then what will you- Is it sinful to be a pessimist? Um, is there a commandment? Maybe it's the 11th commandment. Thou shalt be a, 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 an optimist. Your mind or our mind gravitate towards. So I've decided to be an optimist. And the thing about pessimistic 
people is that if, if you are a pessimist, you, you can worry about 15 things, but pessimistic people can always add something else to their worry list, can't they? I mean, you can be compounding your worries, you can be freaked out, but you can always add something else. But what I know above anything else is that if God is on my side, how can negativity abide? Um, Tom, do you have a passage that backs all of this up? You're just making an unfounded assertion about God. Don't you find that kind of odd for a Christian pastor to be doing? So many times we try to look at the darkness that is in our life or look at the circumstance or look at the obstacle. And all we want to do is we want to, we want to turn over in our mind how bad the situation is, how bad the obstacle is. Um, and, it, and it becomes a challenge in our life to break out of that pattern. I love the Chinese proverb that says, um, don't curse the darkness, just light a candle. That's a great Chinese proverb, but, you know, there's lots of biblical proverbs that we could be looking at. Um, any particular reason why we're not looking at those? And I think that's a very powerful proverb that we can learn in our lives. Um, as people, as God's children, we should be cultivating a positive attitude in our lives. Uh, where, can you give me a Bible verse that says that we should be cultivating a positive attitude in our lives? Can you show me a passage where Jesus said that, or one of the apostles said that. Because if God is on our side, how can negativity abide? If I have Jesus in my life, and he is illuminating me on the inside of my life, he is the light of my soul, then no matter what the external... So Jesus lights up your life? ...eternal darkness might look like, I can get through that season. I can get through that situation. I can overcome that particular obstacle. And there is no better example of this. There is no better story, no better person to talk about when it comes to talking about having a positive outlook on life than David. David in the Bible. So, so the story of David is all about having a positive outlook on life. Yeah, I miss that in all of my theology classes. Weird. Was a man after God's own heart. That's what, that's what the Bible says. Many of you who don't know about my boy David, my boy David was a shepherd boy. Here is his storyline. And he was a shepherd boy. He was the least of all of the sons of Jesse, his father. He was tending sheep in a field, but God brought him from a shepherd boy and God promoted him to a king. But he did this not because David was the most talented, not because David was the best looking, not because David had all of the gifts. You see, David got promoted because David had an attitude about life. Okay, do you have a single verse that says that? Do you, I mean, you just made an assertion here. The reason why David, King David, prior to him being the king of Israel, the reason why he got promoted is because God looked at him and said, oh, I love this kid's attitude about life. Do you have a single verse that says that? One would do. By the way, there isn't any. David had this positive outlook. No matter what the situation, David always seemed to gravitate toward being eternally optimistic. How many of you are eternally optimistic? How many people in here, no matter what you're going through right now, you know that at some point in your life, you're going, it's going to get better. 
You- it doesn't always get better. Sometimes the the verdict is that the 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 diagnosis is that you have a terminal disease and you're going to die. It ain't going to get better. Things are only going to get worse, and then you're going to crump. You know that's all right. You know that if God is on your side, no matter how negative the situation that you are going to abound and grace is going to come alive in you and your future looks bright. So bright, as ZZ Top says, you have to wear shades. Really? Um, yeah, that doesn't even sound realistic. I, I'm, I'm telling you that when God is on our side, how can negativity abide? We see in First Samuel, Samuel, chapter, First Samuel, <laughs> First Samuel, chapter 17, we see the storyline of David. And I love the attitude of David. And as we look at the life of David, we learn a few basic principles. This is all I want to show you today. Okay, now watch what he's doing here. As we look at the life of David, we learn a few basic principles. Apparently, he knows how to spot the principles. But see, that's the thing about so-called biblical principles preaching, is that it's always law-based, and many times it's dependent on the person reading the text. Uh, rather than, I mean, so here's the question I have is, is that is the reason why God, the Holy Spirit inspired this particular biblical book to be written or this particular passage about David and Goliath to be written is so that we can find the biblical principles that we can apply to our lives so that we would be optimists rather than pessimists. Is that the reason why this text was penned? If you say yes, I would say prove it. Uh, there isn't a shred of evidence. There's nothing in this text that would indicate that this is all about you learning how to have a, the attitude that David had. Just a few basic principles of how that we can beat the negative cycle that we get into in our lives. First Samuel chapter 17, David. We see a story of David. We see the story of a giant named Goliath. We see the the army of Israel, King Saul's army. And and we see David's brothers, his three older brothers, are in the army of Israel. And they are on the battle lines. Now David is back at home with his father Jesse. He isn't even in the picture. David is tending sheep. He is a shepherd boy. A simple shepherd boy in the fields watching the flock. And we see Israel in the middle of an army, in the middle of a battle... And they are battling Philistines. And we see this big champion of a man named Goliath. And he comes out and he defies the army of the Lord. And Goliath challenges King Saul's army. For 40 days, Goliath came out with his armor. He came out with his javelin, with his spear, with his shield. And he challenged the army of the Israelites. And for 40 days, they backed down from that obstacle. You see, Goliath was a big man. He was a mountain of a man. The Bible said he was at least 10 foot tall. There was no man in the land that was bigger than Goliath. So we see an obstacle in front of the army of the Lord. Now, I'm narrating this story. As David goes... Now, I want to make something clear. He's doing more than narrating. He's actually interpreting at this point. He's sticking stuff into the story in his summary that is not in the biblical text. Let's continue up to the battle line because his dad asked him to take up some supplies to his brothers. So we see David going to the battle lines and all of a sudden David becomes engaged in the situation. And David sees the giant. And as David sees the giant, he doesn't see the giant as an obstacle. He sees the giant as an opportunity. And he sees the giant as a way forward. 
So David immediately sees things and his outlook is very different than from the army of Israel. And we learn some things as David is going through this. We learn some things about ourselves. We learn some things about how to move forward with a positive attitude. And I just want to share some of that with you. The first thing that we learned from David in Samuel chapter 17 is that we shouldn't build a case against ourselves. Really? We shouldn't build a case against ourselves. Which of the biblical, you know, uh, which biblical commentary have you been reading on the Old Testament that says that's what's in this text? I don't see it. Don't build a case against yourself. That's the first thing that David teaches us. You see, David had every opportunity to believe that he couldn't do the job. In the storyline, David took down the giant. But the better storyline is how that David came around and how that David had to fight adversity just to get into the battle. You see, David was told by three different people that he couldn't do the job. It is easy for us to build a case against ourselves, isn't it? It's easy for a man to build a case against himself as to why he isn't a good man. Uh, Yeah, there's a really easy way to do that. Just read the Ten Commandments and you realize you ain't a good man. Uh, you ain't a good woman either. Um, <clears throat> emphasis added there. Uh, yeah. Read the Ten Commandments and then let me know, how, score yourself on it and let me know how you come out. And then, then we'll discuss whether or not you are a good person or not. Because if you just break one of them, you're guilty of hell and you ain't a good person. It is, it is easy for a woman to build a case against herself as to why she isn't a good woman. It's easy for a mom to build a case against herself as to why she's not a good mom. You see, we are very good. We're actually even great at building a case against ourselves. Why do we do this? Because we listen to everyone else that is around us and we don't hear the voice of the Lord. Because God on the inside of us is saying things to us that matters. God God where? God on the inside of me is saying things to me? Oh boy. Yeah, because God on the outside of me, God in the God who wrote the biblical text... His word condemns me and shows that I'm not good, that I need a savior, and that Christ bled and died for me. Hmm. ...to our life, but we're too busy listening to the clamoring, listening to all of the other negative things that everyone else has to say. Building a case against yourself is something that isn't a positive thing that you can do in your life. You see, David went to the battle lines. Immediately, he encounters his brothers... His older brother Eliab looked at David and said, David, you shouldn't even be here. You shouldn't be on these front lines. You shouldn't be on this battlefield. So immediately a family member comes to David and says that you cannot do this. But David says, I want to go up. I want to fight the giant. Now notice this is David's story, not mine and not yours. It's his. And notice he's flattening out the biblical text so that somehow... There's some major application here that you've got to apply to your own life. You know, when you run across obstacles, you've got to have the optimism that David had because all of the story is really about optimism. Text doesn't say that. We're going to get to it in just a little bit. If you want to open up your Bible, 1 Samuel chapter 17, go ahead and go there, and then we're going to get into the biblical text here in a minute. And then King Saul finds out that this young shepherd boy is up in the front ranks. And so the king calls David to his tent. And the king looks at David and says, David, you shouldn't be here. You can't do this. But again, David doesn't listen to the king. 
because he knows what God has said to him inside of his heart. David could have easily built a case against himself, yet he built himself up before people. He built himself up before the king. He built himself up before those that were around him. Can I tell you something? There is a difference in someone who is cocky and someone who has a godly confidence about them. It is time for us to start saying great things about ourselves. We notice in 1 Samuel... Whoa, I mean, serious, wow. This is like the exact opposite. The Bible says that he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah, this is some dangerous preaching that we're hearing here. We got we need to exalt ourselves. Yowzers. Wow. Chapter 17, verse 36. I would like to read that passage as we see David going in and talking to the king. And we see in 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 36, let me get there really fast. The king, actually let's go to 33. The king replied to David, you are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You were only a boy and he has been fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, now listen to this. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off the sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant was killed by both the, your, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. You see, understand that David didn't build a case against himself. He built a case for himself. You know, actually, if you read the, the passage, David made a case for God, not for himself. Let, let's read this passage. It's a great story, by the way. We, we, we refer to it several times a year here at Fighting for the Faith because, well, this is just one of the favorite passages of the Bible that seeker-driven guys like to twist. And they all come up with similar twists on it, but... This one is kind of breathtakingly bad. So let's start at verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sukkah and Azekah and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the on one side, Israel on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders, and uh, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? I'm, I'm trying to make sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger here. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll be back. Anyway, he says, I, Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then ye shall be our servants and serve us. Ha, ha, ha. You get what's going on here. So, and the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. 
When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly feared. Now, his defiance wasn't just against the so-called ranks of Israel. Goliath was defying God himself, and David keys in on this a little bit. Just keep, well, let me keep reading. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man already... The man was already old and advanced in years, and the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle. The names of the three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next in him, uh, to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also, take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went to Jesse as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All of the men of Israel... When they saw the man, fled from him, and they were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine, and takes away this reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? that he should defy the armies of the living God. Now notice, David sees this thing through the eyes of faith in Yahweh, in faith in the Lord. He sees that this Philistine is not defying just the armies of Israel, but that he's defying the army of Israel, which belongs to God. He's seeing this correctly for what it is. Okay? So the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, when he heard uh, him uh, speaking to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now notice, both of these uh, stories about the lion and the bear, they sound miraculous. And they are. So Saul here is not, not Saul, but David is not here referring to his own skill. He's referring to the fact that God has rescued him from the hand of the lion and the bear. And he believes and trusts in God and believes that God, because he's done the same in the past, will do the same in this instance as well. He's put all of his trust in the one true God of Israel. He's not trusting in himself. He's not building himself up. His faith is not in himself, and it's not that he's a a positive thinker or an optimist. It's that he has faith in God. That's what the text is pointing us to. So David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. That's what the text says. So Saul said to David, go, and may the Lord be with you. So then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd pouch in his shepherd's pouch and his, and his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine and the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him and when the Philistine looked and saw David he disdained him for he was but a youth ruddy and handsome in appearance and the Philistine said to David am I a dog that you come with me with sticks And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. What weapon is David fighting with again? He's fighting with the name of the one true God. That's really his weapon, not the five stones, not the shepherd's sling. That's not his weapon. He's coming against the Philistine with the name of Yahweh, the one true God in whom he trusts, right? That's what the text said. He wasn't building himself up. He wasn't being an eternal optimist. He none of the none of the things that uh, that Tom here, Pastor Tom, is pointing us to, make any sense when you read the biblical text. The weapon that David went against the Philistine with was the Lord. So he said, "I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day." Yahweh will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that on all the earth they may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and not with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. 
When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand into his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Now, again, I ask the question, according to David, what was the weapon that he was coming against the Philistine with? Was it the stones? No, it was with the name of the Lord. Okay, this, I mean, I, at this point, I'm pretty sure that if David had a BB gun, it would have been a fatal shot, because his weapon wasn't wasn't the stones; it was God. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistine as far as Gath and in the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Yeah, it's weird that Pastor Tom here, by giving us a synopsis, his own summary of the text, is leaving out God and somehow making it sound like David is the one who performed this great miracle rather than God. Because if you, in David's own words, he wasn't coming against the Philistine in his own power or with weapons. He was coming against the Philistine with the name of God. David was a man of faith, not an optimist. Big, big difference. And the text bears that out when you read it in context. Are you hearing the voice of the Lord? Are we building a case for who we are? Are we hearing the voice of God and understanding the great things, the great attributes, what God has given us to do? In the midst of all of that adversity, David built a case for himself. David wasn't saying, I can't. David was saying... No, he was saying that God will. I can. David wasn't saying, I can't do this. He was saying, I can do it. God said that I can do it. It doesn't matter what the critics are. It, can, I, can I tell you something? A critic is nothing more than a trophy to an overachiever. If you are getting criticized for doing something great for God... Take that criticism and put it on a mantle and count it as a trophy. Because when you overachieve or when you have a big dream or when God has put you out there and given you something big to do, you're going to get criticized. And notice that you know, at this point where you're apparently God speaking directly to your heart to give you something big to do. I mean, you know, this is, again, shrinking the biblical text down that somehow this, the application here is for you to do something big like David did. I think the application is for us to trust in the same God that David trusted in. Adversity is going to come. And I love how David just continued to push forward and continued to do great things. Don't say, I can't. I can't is the worst thing that can be in our vocabulary. In, in the Skiles house, we definitely do not say, we can't. My kids get in trouble for saying, I can't do it. I will look at them in their beady little eyes and I will say, you are a child of God and you are a Skiles. You can. 
I want my kids to grow up with a legacy in their life that, that allows them to take risks and, ch- and they have the confidence to step out. And, and I can't shouldn't be a part of our vocabulary. If you said yes to Jesus, you better believe that you can. If you're following Jesus, you have the power on the inside of you to do whatever you have to do. Well, what if I fail? Well, what if we fail? What I know about life is that the moments that are in front of us echoes in the eternity that is before us. Oh, what a ripoff of, uh, of Gladiator. Good night. Serious, Tom? And if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God is on our side, how can negativity abide in us? I can't. Listen, we can. We may not be able to do it well, but we can. I am not the best singer in my family. I'm not. I will admit that. But I can sing. And let me tell you what. When I tuck my kids in bed late at night and it's just me and my wife late at night in our living room just there by ourselves, I I sing her love ballads. That's right. I'm a 90s guy, so I'll... He just loves talking about himself, doesn't he? I'll throw out some, some boys to men. Close your eyes, make a wish. Let's blow out the candlelight. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to receive an offering now. Would you guys come up and... Hey, I, I may not be able to sing well, but I sing. I have heard some of you worship. You, you can't sing well, but I appreciate that you sing because it is so important that we can. I might not be able to dance well, but I dance. I dance. The only dance I can do well is the twist. Come on, baby. I can do that one. Yep, that's exactly what you do in this biblical text. So it, I guess it doesn't surprise me. It makes perfect sense. You do the twist really well. Because that one doesn't require movement back and forth. You know, I don't have to move my legs. The minute that I have to move my legs, I get in trouble. But when we go to family reunions or when we're out there, and my wife, she can dance like J-Lo. <laughs> she can dance. So, but, and I look like a fool out there. But when we go to weddings or whatever, we go out and have fun. Listen, don't say you can't. Don't allow yourself to slip into that negativity. What I loved about David is that he said that he can. Apostle Paul in the Bible said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Taken out of context. Keywords. Look it up. Read. I, you know. <clears throat> Go into, go and do a search, find the passage, get familiar with your Bible yourself. And when you find, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, read four verses ahead and four verses after that statement and see if this is what Paul was talking about. If the whole purpose of that passage that the Holy Spirit inspired the apostle Paul to write was all about you having a a positive, optimistic attitude rather than being negative. Is that really what that this means? Read it in context. Go and do the work. I Do the work. You need to take your Bible up and familiarize yourself with it in such a way that you can do this work yourself. I can do all things. I can do all things. 
I cannot stand a negative Christian. It is an oxymoron to me. I do not get a child of God who slips into this negative pattern. And I I absolutely don't understand the world's view of how that, well, when you become saved, there are so many things that you can't do. That's not true. It was Paul that said, all things are acceptable for me. Not all things are profitable, but all things are acceptable for me. But we slip into this negative pattern when we think about Christianity, don't we? Well, when you get saved, you can't do this and you can't do that. When I got saved and I truly found a foundation in Jesus Christ, it opened me. Yeah, by the way, um, yeah, I, when usually people talk about people who are Christians, they can't do this or they can't do that. Let me, let me clue you in as to what kinds of things Christians ought not to be doing. <clears throat> Sexual immorality, stealing, gossiping, lying, cheating, you know, things of that nature. Yeah, you can't do that stuff anymore. Carousing, whoremongering, homosexuality. Yeah, those, there are things that Christians ought not to be doing. Be up to do whatever I wanted to do. By the power of faith and the spirit of Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit has set me free from the law of sin, death, and religion. Okay, he's quoting it out of context again. I'm challenging you to do the homework on this. Look it up. All things are acceptable. Not all things are profitable. All things I can do, but I will not be mastered by any. You see, Christ Jesus has set us free from that I can't spirit and mentality. And David understood something amazing about that. Listen, we can. What I love about David is he built a case for himself, not against himself. Uh, No, he built a case for the one true God. I just read the text and proved it. If God is on my side, how can negativity abide? One other thing I want to share here is echo what God has to say about you. We need to echo what God has to say about us. We need to begin to speak the word of life inside of ourselves. I I, I love it when people say, well, I need minister to. Minister to yourself. Don't go to Tom Skiles uh, to be ministered to. You need need to learn how to minister to yourself. You need to be a self-feeder and a self-minister. Okay. Begin to start speaking the words of life inside of yourself. And when you speak those words to God, he's going to echo them back into your life. There is a little illustration of a father and his son, and they're, they're climbing this mountain. They decided they wanted to go on the hike. The hike was fun at first. It was an exciting time, but then it became laborious to get to the top. Yeah, just want to let you know, there is a story in the Old Testament about a father and son who hiked up a mountain. It's the story of Abraham being told by God to offer up his son Isaac, his only son to sacrifice him at Mount Moriah. This is a, you're looking for a good father-son kind of story about hiking up a mountain. That'd be a good one that's biblical. The air became thinner. The boy's legs began to hurt. And he started saying, he started complaining, and then finally he yelled out, I can't! And that mountain echoed back to him, I can't! And the boy was startled. He had never been in a place where there was an echo before. So he said, who is that? And the mountain said, who is that? The boy said, come out, coward. And the mountain said, come out, coward. And the father was kind of laughing as he was looking at his boy and and watching him go through this. And the boy looked at his dad and said, what is this? And And the father kind of with wisdom looked at his son and he said, son, that is an echo. It is a lot like life. 
what you give to it, it's going to give back to you. It amazes me how that we get stuck in our Christianity, how that we get stuck in our relationship with Jesus. And all that I can tell you is that if you are spiritually stuck, you need to begin to echo what God is saying about you. Okay, begin to echo the fact that God says of you that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and that Jesus Christ died for your sins. See if that's what he means. Because what you give to it, you are going to get back. I'm so excited. Um, Jason Gazak, in a couple of weeks, he has this uh, amazing word that he wants to share with everybody, kind of along that line. What you give to it is what you are going to get back. And I'm excited to, this would be the first time I get to set in and, and hear Jason. I, he's a great speaker, communicator, and I'm, I'm excited about setting in on that. But, but that is so true. What you say to the mountain, it is going to echo back to you. Yeah, and that story about the mountain talking and all that echo stuff, it's not, it's not in the Bible. That's not a biblical story. How weird that you don't want to tell the biblical stories and you don't want to tell them in context so that the text dictates what it is that God is saying to us. Strange, don't you think? So what are we saying? If our life is an echo of our response to it, what are you saying to the mountain? What are we saying to the obstacle? I love what David said to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45 and 46. Do we have that up? Can we put that up? 1 Samuel 17, 45 and 46. David is in front of the giant, confronting the giant. And he says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Right. Let's see if he steers into the right way of understanding this text. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I will cut off your head. That's powerful. I mean, that's getting serious about what God can do in your life. Uh, No, it's trusting in God. God is looking for mighty warriors. Uh, No, Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost. Where in the Bible does it say God is looking for mighty warriors? It says in Scripture, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Sinners. In fact, if you're not a sinner, Jesus doesn't really have anything much to offer you. God is looking for people to stand on his promise and to believe in him and to start echoing. Believe in him for what? A positive outcome in your life? We're all worm food 50, 60 years from now anyway. What it is that God feels about us. What are you saying to your mountain that is in front of you? I don't speak to mountains. I don't really make a regular habit of it. Do you speak to mountains on a regular on a regular thing basis? I, I sure don't. What are you saying to that obstacle that is right in front of you? Uh, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't see an obstacle in front of me. I see a laptop. Do you have the power of God in your life? And are you speaking positive things into your life? Or are you slipping? Power of positive thinking. That sounds like uh, the word faith movement uh, heresy to me. Into this negative pattern. I love that David wasn't pouting. He wasn't running. He wasn't retreating. He wasn't hiding in his tent. He was on the front lines, speaking the words that God was giving to him. Our life is no coincidence. And can I tell you something? I've learned that my life is echoing back exactly what I put into it. 
And if my responses are positive, then I'm going to get the echo of positivity back to me. But if I live life in a negative pattern with a negative outlook, that is also going to come back to me. And you got any passages that actually teach this doctrine? Take a look in the mirror if you want to blame someone for where you are right now. Let me hide behind this table. Yeah, you see, now you're telling me to talk myself down. I mean, earlier you told me that I need to not let anyone talk me into, you know, saying negative things about myself. And now you're talking me down. I'm confused. Take a look in the mirror if you want to blame someone. It's nobody's fault but yours, sir, man. If you want to kick someone. Yet notice there's no gospel here, and notice he missed the whole, I come at you with the word of the Lord. He cited it. You know, he read the the verse, but it just completely you know, didn't even register in his own mind. Weird. You'll be kicking your own butt for many weeks for the situation that you might have landed in. Well, Tom, there were things that were beyond my control. It doesn't matter. What you do have control of is how that you respond to the mountain. What we do have control of is what... What mountain? What we say to the mountain. What we do have control of is, is what we do in that particular situation. And I love what David did. It's Ralph Waldo Emerson that uh, says, It is possible for a man to be cheated by himself. That is absolutely true. It is possible for us to cheat our own selves. Like the boy in the illustration, we struggle with negativity, we struggle with doubt, and we cry out the negativity, and we cry out the doubt, and then that echoes back to us. It gives us back exactly what we are putting into it. And a person who doubts himself is like a man who enlists in the ranks of his own enemy. Doubt myself. That would mean the solution is for me to trust myself. No, that's not what Christianity calls us to do. It calls us to trust in Christ, not ourselves. I'm the problem. Why would I trust myself? And takes up arms against himself. When you're doubting yourself, you are taking up arms against yourself. Some of us need to stop having a civil war in our own mind. Some of us have to begin to start determining that we are on God's side. And that what God says about us is true. And we, we might not be perfect. We might not be uh, perfect people. Let me tell you what. If you were looking for, for perfect people among us, among our leaders, you came to the wrong church. The closer you get to our leadership, the more humanity you're going to see. And we allow that. Because we're not trying to fool anyone. We have a passion and a love for Jesus. But I refuse to pretend. Well, if you did, why don't you preach him then? Weird. Tend. And I refuse to set up a system where everyone hides behind the veil. Here's what I know for sure. No matter what I go through, no matter what I deal with, no matter what weakness that I have in my life, I will not fail backward. I will fail forward. In other words, if God is on my side, how can negativity Again, that's not a biblical verse. And how do you fail forward exactly? I'm curious how that, what that looks like. We have to learn how to fail forward. Know this, when you have a great dream, your mind will be your biggest foe. When God has planted in you something great... I mean, talk about delusions of grandeur. Good night. 
Your mind will immediately come against you. You will think of all of the obstacles that are in the way of that dream. You will think of all the things that can go wrong. You will think of all the reasons that you can't do it. And you'll wind up being your own worst handicap. Because that is what we do when something great is before us. We handicap ourselves. The Bible says that I am more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. We need to echo that. I am more than a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror. That needs to be echoed in your life each and every day. I am. Whatever you put behind I am is what you will be. Whatever comes after that phrase, I am. It was God who quoted in the scriptures, I am that I am. In other words, God is saying, I am God. Besides me, there is no other. Whatever you put behind I am, so it is. So it will be. What are you saying? Wow, this is bad. This is just freaky stuff, almost like in Patricia Kingland. Good night. What are you saying to your mouth? And what are we saying about ourselves? We have to embrace the obstacles as opportunities, and I'm almost done. I love David. He didn't build a case against himself. David learned that it was very important that he and also that he embrace obstacles as opportunities. The giant was in front of him, but he didn't see the giant and run in fear. He saw the giant as an opportunity to do something great. Great men and women of God rise up in those times. They find themselves in a situation to do something great. And it doesn't even matter if you fail. It doesn't matter if you do not win the battle. What matters is that you said, I can. You stepped into that and you lived your life with purpose. Is that, is that right? Uh, no, that's not right at all. That's a complete eisegetical way of handling the text and it's not correct at all. Right. I would rather live a 35, 40 year life of purpose than a 100 year life of doing absolutely nothing. I would rather have God speak into my life and me get out there and fail, fail, fail. I love what Winston Churchill says. He said, it is the successful man that can go from failure to failure with enthusiasm. I would rather be like that. You're always going to encounter a tough situation. We're always going to encounter a situation where it might, we might not come out winning, but we can come out succeeding. I love the story of my brother, my brother Joe. He's two years older than me. He is, uh, he was, we, sh we were very close uh, as young boys, two years older than me. You know, th this is almost the same attitude that Charlie Sheen has with this whole winning thing. Maybe we should call this the Charlie Sheen theology sermon. We were pretty much best friends. We're still very close. And he t um, my father kind of tells a story, and I remember this story very clearly. In junior high... We rode the bus together home from school, and every day Joe would get picked on. Joe was in the eighth grade. He was just kind of learning how to be a man. But every day, this little bit larger boy would pick on him, push him around, and Joe put up with this for a few weeks until finally he went to my father, and he said, Dad, this guy keeps picking on me. What should I do? Now, you have to know my dad. He said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to go onto that bus, look that kid straight in the eye, rear your fist back, and punch him right in the nose. Now, my dad's a minister. That might not be biblical, but this is what he was feeling at the time. 
Joe had a problem with all of this. He kind of wrestled with this because the problem was twofold, actually. His first problem was he was a little bit afraid of the boy, but his second problem was we had a principal at our school who was around 6'4 and 300 pounds. His name was Mr. Kernett, and this was back when corporal punishment was acceptable. How many believe in corporal punishment? Man, I thank God that I got the swats that I got in school. And I said, I'll sign my boy up any day of the week. Let's go back to it. He, he carried a paddle around that said the enforcer on the paddle. The paddle was about that big. Mr. Kernett did not play around. So Joe had two fears that he was wrestling with. He didn't know how to respond to any of it. But he did exactly what my father said for him to do. And I remember dad saying, looking Joe and saying, you do this And when you get to that principal's office, I'll come in there and I will square it away for you, son. So Joe goes onto that school bus. He rears his hand back. He pops that kid right in the nose. That big kid started crying. It was the best thing that I'd ever seen in my life. It was great. I was was just loving watching it all go down. So Joe gets to school. Of course, here comes the enforcer down the hallway takes Joe into the principal's office. I mean, this is just like David and Goliath. I mean, the, the parallels are so uncanny. Joe's crying. He says, let me call my dad. I got to call my dad. So Joe gets on the phone. He calls dad. He says, dad, I'm here with Mr. Kernett. Dad says, son, just take it like a man. <laughs> That's exactly how it went down. I'm not for sure what dad was trying to teach Joe on that particular day. I will tell you this. My brother was a better man regardless of how that panned out. You see, because he wasn't afraid anymore. The engagement was was challenging for him, but on the other side of that, he he gained confidence. He gained strength. He understood that it's good to put yourself out there. If God is on my side, how can negativity abide? We have to learn to embrace those obstacles. Yeah, the text doesn't say that. And in closing here, I want to... Oh, thank God, we're closing. Good. Yeah, because we never really opened with anything that's even biblical. ...share with you one other thing that David did, and here's what I love. David's enthusiasm. Yeah, you know, you could just apply his optimism and enthusiasm to your life so that you can speak to mountains and and echo back good things, you know, because that's what this whole passage is supposedly really about. No matter what David did, You'll notice in the Bible this, this underlying attitude with David, even when he was making mistakes, even when he was in the cue, middle of... Cue sappy music. No, no, no. David had faith. He had faith. He was a total screw-up. The life of David. God said he was a man after his own heart, but this guy was messed up. Just like every one of us. He made mistakes. They're called sins. He wasn't perfect. Yeah, it's called being a sinner. But I think what God liked about David more than anything else was the attribute of enthusiasm that he had on the Oh, yeah. See, that's what God really liked about him. Yeah, forget the fact that God praised him for having, you know, for being a man after his own heart. Uh, Forget that. Forget the fact that God, you know, that without faith it's impossible to please God. And David was really a man of faith. Oh, forget that. And that he understood repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Understood that he was a sinner in need of God's grace. Oh, forget that. No, no, no. 
God really liked what great enthusiasm he had. And God won't like you unless you have enthusiasm too. In fact, if you don't have enthusiasm, well, chances are God doesn't really like you. The inside of him. You see, he was enthusiastic even before the battle ever began in Samuel chapter 17. David was telling everyone, I'm going to defeat this giant. Uh, No, David kind of made the point of pointing out that this giant was defying the armies of the living God and that God was going to deliver him. He kept talking about God delivering him. That's what he said to Saul. That's what he said to the folks. That's what he said to Goliath. He was pretty obsessed with this idea that God was going to deliver him. He was he was speaking it into existence out of the abundance. Of, oh, no, he was not, sir. That's not what the text says at all of the heart. The mouth speaks. Yeah, here we go. Word, faith, heresy. And when you say what God is saying to your heart and you speak it into your situation, it's going to echo great things back to you. Well, Tom, can it? Man, this is horrible. Can it stop my mortgage from defaulting? Maybe not. Well, what's the point of having that, uh, that power if you can't use it to keep your mortgage from defaulting? But it can certainly change how you see that entire situation in your life. And it can stop you from applying a negative cycle to your life situation. Aren't you tired? Oh, man. Tired of a negative pattern. No, I'm tired of sermons like this that completely miss the whole point of Scripture. Man, aren't you tired of allowing the enemy inside of you to beat you down to nothing? No, I'm tired of pastors like you who are agents of the enemy who refuse to preach Christ and Him crucified for our sins. Let me tell you what. If God is on my side how can negativity abide david had enthusiasm when was the last time you've been enthusiastic about something i'm enthusiastic about stuff i might be a simple man but i am enthusiastic about the things in my life you are so godly because of your enthusiasm right that's probably one of the primary attributes of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Forget love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, things like that. No, 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 no. The primary gift of the Holy Spirit, enthusiasm. Forget the fact that it isn't listed anywhere, but okay. Life. I am enthusiastic about my God and my relationship with Jesus. I'm on fire for him. This isn't something that I do for a pay. You sure do talk about yourself a lot rather than Jesus. How weird. Paycheck. There is no money in church planting. I promise you that. I do this because I love Jesus. I'm enthusiastic. Yeah, if you love Jesus so much, why don't you preach him? Why don't you let his words reign in your sermons? Hmm? Enthusiastic about God, and he has changed my life. And if he can change someone else's life, that is the church that you're coming to. That's what this is about. It's a grassroots movement of Jesus. And how that he changes people's lives. I'm enthusiastic about my wife. Yeah, a different gospel. And no, Jesus calls you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Your, your life might change, all right? You might be persecuted and suffer loss as a result of confessing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Yeah, your life might change, all right? But n- nowhere in the Bible does it promise that your suburbanite angst will be uh, uh, addressed by Jesus in such a way that you can speak to mountains and you know be enthusiastic and things like that. She's up here on the front row right here. My lovely, beautiful, smoking hot, amazing wife. Man, where have we heard this before? Oh, Talladega Nights all over again. I am enthusiastic about her. She's the greatest thing that ever happened to me. 
even greater than Jesus, I'm sure. And I show her, I want to show her that enthusiasm. I'm enthusiastic about my children. I get excited about the young man that my, my, my 13-year-old boy is becoming. I get excited about the young lady that my, my daughter is becoming. And when I see their, their outlook in life, I don't see it as a negative impact. Well, now we're raising kids in a generation and I just, you know, the terrorism and I just don't know what's going to happen. Listen, mom and dad, paint a positive picture. Yeah, please, quick, before something negative happens. I mean, don't you understand if you say something negative, it, you're creating a self-fulfilling negative prophecy and you'll, you're doomed. For the outlook of your children? Show them to be, allow them to look in the middle of the mouth of the lion and to say, if God is on my side, how can negativity abide? I'm enthusiastic about that. I am in the, I'm enthusiastic about this church, about what God is doing among the, the hearts and the lives of his people. So many people's lives have been transformed by spirit of St. Louis Church. Wow. Been changed, changed. So many young lives and, and so many people have been impacted and I get enthusiastic when I think about that. But it's not just the big things. I get enthusiastic about Swiss rolls too. I mean, it's the little things. My wife love my wife and I love to go out and have a good meal. We get enthusiastic about that. We're one of the Oh, yeah, again, more proof that you are so holy. Yes. Yes, what sanctified people you are. Huh? Look at how this enthusiasm is just brimming over into all these different areas of your life. Truly the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure. One of those kinds of people that talk about our food. Presentation, color, sight, sound, smell. We love that stuff. Listen, if you cannot draw from great things, if you can't go out to a restaurant and enjoy your meal, what did you pay the money for? Yeah, right, yeah. I mean, I don't understand that. Yeah, it's tough to understand, that's for sure. We want to criticize and pick and be negative about everything. And then if we can't be negative in public, we get on Facebook. We're going to be negative on Facebook. Sir or ma'am, you're a coward if you get on Facebook and you throw your negativity all over the place. Let's use social media to advance. Oh, Lord, please save us from social media negativity. It's, it's destroying Western civilization. Help us, please. It's the gospel of, of Jesus Christ in our life. If God is on my side. Yeah, you haven't even preached the gospel yet, this sermon. I'm, I'm questioning as to whether or not you even know what it is. How can negativity abide? If you think excitement, if you talk excitement, if you act excitement, you will be excited. It might not happen tomorrow. Do excited, enthusiastic people go to heaven while negative pessimists go to hell? Is that the standard? But if you get into this cycle, you think excitement, you act excitement, you talk excitement, you're going to be excited. Think excitement, act excitement. This has nothing to do with the Bible at all. Something happens. If you did that 10 times right now, you'd walk out of here excited. Because it's a habit, you see. It's a psychological habit that you are getting yourself into. Oh, yeah, yeah. Save me from my negative psychological habits, please. You're setting up a pattern for success for what is happening in your future, short-term future. 
and long-term future. Do you want to leave a legacy? You want your life to be a legacy? I know people... Uh, do I go to hell if I don't leave a legacy? People in this room right now, that their life has impacted me so much. Oh my gosh. They've changed my life. I know how the world sees church. Well, you're the minister. Aren't you supposed to change people's lives? There are people in this auditorium now that have changed my life. Just observing them. Whoa. Oh, yeah. Wow. And we're so busy waiting for a position to show our influence. I have no idea what he's talking about at this point. We're just like freewheeling you know, out there on the range somewhere. We're so busy waiting for that position. Listen, it is not the position. It is the disposition of your heart that makes you great. Really? You got a passage in the Bible that says that? The disposition. It's how you respond to life. The great people in this church aren't always the leaders that are up front or on stage. Gary Parsons is the most amazing guy to me. He is the maintenance man in our facility. He's amazing. Ooh, way to go. He is one of the most influential guys in this church. His disposition, his heart, his attitude changes people that are here around. I think of Mike and Donna Thomas. People. Oh, yes. There's nothing more powerful than the po power of positive thinking, right? Yeah. People that I've been with forever. Mike and Donna have been with this church since we were seven people in a green. You going to talk about Jesus at all and what he did on the cross for us? You got anything that has to do with like, you know, sinners being forgiven by the blood of Christ? Anything like that for us? That might be a little negative, though, because then you'd have to admit that you were a sinner and you don't want to say bad things about yourself, you know. And I remember them sitting with us and we were this young church and they were more elder members and came from a more traditional church. And it would have been easy for them to look at this church and say, man, this church is way different than anything I've been a part of. But they're... they're yeah, because it's like not a church. Disposition, their heart, their positive attitude changed me. They're influential people. Not because of title, but it's the disposition of the heart. Yeah, I'm officially weirded out. Wow. You want to change your work environment? You want to change your family? No, I want to preach Christ. You want him crucified for our sins. I'm not ashamed of the gospel's power of God for salvation for all who believe. To change. You know, for we are, you know, ambassadors of God. You know, announcing to the world that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. You know, that kind of stuff. The people that you were around, stop trying to gain an influential position and start choosing the disposition of your heart to be right before the Lord. Yeah, that sentence made no sense. If God is on my side, how can negativity abide? Oh man, I pray that for each and every person. Yeah, yeah, because that's so powerful, yeah. That is in this room. As I'm closing, an example of disposition. Yeah, please, share another. Is this. Many people freeze in the winter, others ski. That's oh, yeah. yeah. Disposition. Yeah, it's all about attitude, man. Many people burn up in the summer. Others eat ice cream. Right, yeah, yeah. That's disposition. It, what happens when the ice cream runs out? It's your ability to look at a situation and see the big picture and the eternal optimistic picture of why you are doing 
what you were doing. The eternal optimistic picture. Hmm. Yeah, again, I don't see any Bible passages that say anything about that. I love people that can make lemonade out of lemons. Oh, yeah, because what a great disposition they have. They're so positive. Unfortunately, most of us just look like we've been baptized in lemons. Oh, what a terrible, terrible thing. And if you've been baptized in lemons, you go to hell. You see, we have to learn to understand that no matter what is going on in our life, if God is on our side, how can negativity abide? Let's, let's pray. Yeah, no. Um, wow. Ah, yeah, nothing like coming back from vacation and sitting in on a really bad sermon. Yeah, uh, again, notice what was missing. I mean, first of all, flattening of the text. He flattened the text so that you know he he alone found these biblical principles, and it's all about having a positive attitude. Yet the text doesn't say anything about that. And when you read the text in context, it's clear that David, well, it was all about his faith and trust in the one true God to deliver him. Um, and uh, you know he was incensed about the fact that this Philistine was um, well taunting and defying the armies of the living God. Um, and the fact also keep in mind, David at this point was the anointed king of Israel too. That might have had something to do with his confidence and trust and faith that God was going to see him through in that particular situation. But the reality is, is that there are promises in the scripture that can be applied to us so that we can look death in the face and say, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? See, the the thing we don't, with the thing we all face, well, it's not Goliath. The thing we all face is death. The thing we all face is slavery to sin, death, and the devil, and Christ has conquered for us by dying on the cross for our sins, propitiating the wrath of God through his shed blood, and he calls us to repent and be forgiven, and upon repenting and being forgiven, we receive a a new person that we are in Christ. All this is a gift from God, so that when we ultimately face that big thing, you know, that, that, that it's death, Death doesn't have the last word. Death doesn't have the victory. Christ has already won. He's already conquered death, and he's going to see us through that. You see, you can kind of you can take the shadow in the Old Testament and apply it to the thing that really applies to all of us. Because the one thing that's common there is that trust in God and trust in Christ for the promises that are truly there for us in Scripture. The Scripture doesn't condemn you if you're a pessimist. It's good to be pessimistic about bad about certain things. Okay, you're not you're not praised for being an optimist if you're optimistic about things that don't make any sense. For instance, if you're optimistic about a beachfront property in the state of Nevada and thinking the Pacific Ocean is going to, you know, just, you know, roll up into Nevada and you're, you're engaging in spec, you know, speculative real estate investments in Nevada, hoping for beachfront property there. Yeah, it'd be wise to be pessimistic rather than optimistic in that particular situation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Anyway, yeah, Jesus Christ and faith in Christ was what was missing here. And Tommy Skiles is, well, kind of doing the light version of the word faith heresy this doesn't save anybody nor does it sanctify anybody it's completely powerless it's completely powerless because it's not a correct handling of god's word there was no gospel preached christ was not truly preached he was mentioned in passing but you know the the central message of the scripture was completely missing and the gospel that was presented was a different gospel yeah again this is not the type of a preaching that sends people, you know, to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and ultimately sends them to peace with God. This is the kind of stuff that keeps people under the wrath of God and sends them to hell. Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. 
If you don't already support us, we truly could use your help during the, uh, let's just say, you know, financially shallow uh, summer months. Uh, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And you know the drill. F- click on one of the buttons. We truly could use your help. And thank you in advance for your support. All right, so what would you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That, that's the biblical gospel. Thing you should be hearing in church. Amen. Amen.